Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are worthy of every word of praise, every word of thanksgiving, every word of gratitude that we can lift up this morning. You're worthy beyond our comprehension and our words to worship you in the way that you deserve. That you still called us here today together to worship your name through your son Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would take our offerings of praise through song and prayer that you would sanctify them by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they might bring you glory and honor and praise from our weak hearts. And God, now as we come to the preaching of your word, we ask that by that same Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive what you have for us today. As we come to your word and as we hear the gospel from your word, we would see once again that you are worthy and wonderful. God, in all things, we submit to you. Now, take our minds, take our hearts, take our wills and our thoughts and our opinions and help us to cast them before your throne as we hear your voice through your word. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. You can be seated. Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans as we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. Come today to Romans chapter 9. And to this point, I think you'll agree that we've seen some incredible things so far. So we began in Romans, we saw God's call and God's gospel and God's power and God's love. And we interrupted that there at the beginning with God's verdict, the condemnation that he owes all men because of sin. But then we saw the good news that these guilty sinners who were not seeking God, who were running from God, have been justified by faith through the grace that God offers us as a gift And that as we come to him in faith and we are made new and we are filled with his spirit, we now have a new life. We're new creatures in Christ. And we now set out to serve him and to love him with our whole selves. We've seen incredible things about the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to take condemned sinners and transform them into living sacrifices of praise to God. And three weeks ago when we were last in Romans, we ended in that climactic part of Romans chapter 8 
What can separate us from the love of God? And we heard that tremendous answer. Nothing can separate us from the love and the purpose and the power of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that all started back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when we saw that the gospel, Romans 1, 16, the gospel is the power of God to save. The gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. The invincible, unstoppable power of God in the gospel. The gospel of God, promised from God, promised by his prophets throughout the entire Old Testament, all about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who was there all along on every single page, in every single prophetic writing, in all the law, in all the history, in all the poetry, in all the wisdom. It was Jesus. And the good news that Paul brings to us, that we bring to you, is that he has come. The Messiah has come. But if Paul is honest, and he is, and he begins to look around in his mind and his heart at the end of chapter 8 coming into chapter 9, there's sort of a dark question that emerges This was from Israel. It was for Israel. And Paul has to deal with this question now, though. Where is Israel? Weren't these promises for them? Weren't these promises made from the prophets and the Old Covenant and the Old Testament? Wasn't that for them? Wasn't it to them? But where are they? Maybe maybe Paul, the gospel, is not so powerful after all. Perhaps you're tempted to look around some days, maybe here even in our sanctuary, and you look at people that used to be here. You think of faces and names and families that used to be here. Maybe you look in your own family and you see those who used to belong to the faith, who used to be here in church with you, who used to go to church wherever they are, and you ask yourself this morning, where is so-and-so? Where, what about so-and-so? What happened to them? As we know, some walk away from the faith. Some fade away over time, and before you know it, you wake up one Sunday morning, you come to church, and you think, where, where is that person? Where is that family? Others, from the start, have rejected the gospel. Others, from the start, have hated the name of Christ and have always rejected the gospel and despised the word of God. And so we look at those cases and we have to ask, where is the promise of God? Where is the power, pastor, of the gospel that you say is there to save, that you say is there to change people? Why doesn't it do it all the time? Where are those people? For Paul, where is Israel? And as we come to Romans chapter 9, we're going to discover some hard truths. Yes, the gospel is God's power to save. But sinful people, unbelieving people, still make their choices. And in their unbelief and their hard hearts and their closed ears, they've made a choice. And we're going to see here today, though, God makes choices too. And that whether we're talking about the unbelief of sinners and the hard hearts of sinners that refuse to believe the gospel or have walked away from the faith, or we're talking about the divine sovereign choice of God, all those choices have eternal consequences. 
It is a challenge to balance out the sovereignty and the decrees of God with what we call human responsibility. It is a challenge to see people who have walked away from the faith, who have rejected the gospel, but also know that God is completely sovereign in salvation. And so what we will see today in Romans 9 will raise some questions. Maybe it will bring some answers. Maybe it will just bring up more questions. Here's what I can promise you. At the end, we will see that God is faithful to his promises. We will see that God will accomplish his will. And perhaps most importantly today, we will see that God will have his people. God will have his people that he purchased through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at Romans chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 1. Romans 9, verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But... It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all of the children of Abraham are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved But Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Number one today here in Romans chapter 9, they had it all. Paul, speaking of the nation of Israel, says, if anyone should have known Jesus, if anyone should have been prepared for their Messiah to come, it should have been Israel. This is what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 10. Isn't it when Nicodemus comes asking, we know you're from God and you're a teacher from God. And Jesus interrupts him and says, Nicodemus, you are the teacher in Israel. And should you not have known these things? You are the teachers of the law. You have the scriptures. You have Moses and the law and the prophets. Should you not have known these things? Paul told us in Romans chapter 1, verse 2, that the gospel of God that he gives us in Christ is not some new thing on the scene in the New Testament. No, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, it was promised from long ago by the prophets. On every single page of the Old Testament is promised Jesus, the Messiah. But as it stands by this time that Paul is writing, and even today, Jesus has been largely rejected by his own people as their Messiah. Look at what Paul says in these first three verses. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, he says. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness with the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you see Paul's anguish for his people? You see Paul's anguish for his nation, his race. His heart breaks for the Jews. He says they are the Israelites. And yet they have rejected their Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And just as Jesus said to Nicodemus, Paul says they should have known. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption. They were made God's people. To them belong the glory. They saw the glory of God. To them belong the covenants. God said, you are my people. I make my covenant with you. The giving of the law. No other nation was gathered at Sinai when God descended in fire and gave them his law and his word. To them belongs the worship. God told Israel how to worship him. He showed them the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priesthood. He gave them the temple. To them belong the promises. The promises that came, verse 5, through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had it all. Even from their very race is promised the Messiah, the Christ, 
whom Paul says is none other than God himself, blessed forever. Amen. And you look at that, and Paul looks at that, and he can't help but feel anguish and sorrow in his heart for his people, seeing all that they had and all that they knew, and yet here they are, continually rejecting Jesus and resisting his Holy Spirit. By the time Paul wrote Romans, he had been kicked out of synagogues, as have the other apostles. Any Jewish men, women, and children who came to name Jesus as their Messiah had probably been kicked out of their synagogues. They have been rejected, they have been persecuted, they have been chased down, they have been beaten, they have been tortured, they have been killed, they have been arrested. And yet Paul's heart still breaks for those very people who have persecuted the church because he knew that he once was one of those. And his heart breaks and he feels sorrow and he feels pity for them. That they don't know Jesus. I wonder this morning if your heart ever breaks for the lost like this. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never wished myself cut off from Christ for the sake of someone else. I don't know that I could honestly mouth that prayer, but Paul here does. I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen, my people, that they might know Jesus. I don't know that I've ever experienced heartbreak and anguish like that for the lost. Have you ever known that kind of heartbreak for the lost, maybe in your own family, maybe some of your children, maybe your parents, maybe some friends, coworkers, classmates, people that don't know Jesus. Has your heart ever broken like that for them? Have you ever felt that kind of anguish for them? Here's another one, not just the people that you know and that you love, but what about those people? The people on the news, the politicians you hate, The parades that go through all the big cities celebrating sin and all sorts of ungodliness. Does your heart break for those people? Or are you more inclined to roll your eyes and to be angry and to be frustrated and to be disgusted with them? Is that what we see in the Apostle Paul here? No. We see compassion. We see sorrow. We see anguish. We see pity. Paul says, Israel... You had it all. What about your friends or your children or your parents, your grandparents, who grew up in church and had faithful Sunday school teachers and who went to every single activity at church and every single vacation Bible school and they heard the gospel and they heard the word time and time again but have now wandered off from the faith. You look at them and you say, what happened to you? You weren't raised like this. You had it all. You know better or you should know better. What about our country? Our country that was founded on somewhat Christian principles, some sort of morality. What if we look at our country over the past one, two hundred years and the way our foundations used to be and where our foundations are now? And you say, the United States, more than any other nation in history, you had it all. Churches on every corner, churches on TV, the gospel on the radio, the gospel on television. You had it all. What happened? If you look at your friends and your coworkers and you think the same thing, it would do us good maybe today to experience some godly sorrow 
for the lost. That we might experience some tears and anguish as did the Apostle Paul. And I think it's important to note that that's where he begins. He doesn't jump into the hard theology that we're going to see in a moment with a cold heart and a hard head. He begins with weeping, with anguish, with sorrow and prayer for the lost. Then Paul goes on in verse 6. We're going to see God's purpose. Israel, you should have known better. Israel, you should have known. If anyone should know, it's you. But he says in verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. It might be tempting to see this sorrow and this anguish and to think, as I said before, man, the gospel has no power over my friend or for my coworker or for this person or our nation or our society. The gospel has no power for this kind of sin and this kind of unbelief. It would be easy to see the sorrow and the anguish and to get lost in that and saying, well, maybe the gospel does not have the power to save as we claim. Or maybe the gospel has just simply failed. Or maybe, dare we say, God has failed. But we've come this far in Romans, and we've seen too much to know that's the case. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He said in chapter 1, verse 16, no, the power of God is in the gospel. In chapter 8, we saw the purpose of God that cannot be thwarted, that cannot be stopped, that is invincible. And so we have to come to this conclusion. God's promises to Israel, though it may seem like it, have not failed. Paul says, we just need to clarify what we mean by Israel. Look at verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Here's a big reminder for us. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham simply because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, Paul says, that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as his offspring. For, by this, or for this is what the promise said about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, she goes on to give birth to Jacob and Esau. Paul says clearly, and pay attention to this, not all of physical Israel is Israel. Not all of Israel's physical descendants are the children of Abraham. No. God used that physical nation. God used that race and that people to bring his covenants, to bring his promises, to bring his Messiah, to reveal his law. But Paul says very clearly here, promises were made. And they weren't made simply on the base of race. They weren't made simply on the basis of nationality. They weren't made simply to this people for that time. A promise was made to Abraham and Sarah. 
Namely, that they would give birth to the son of promise whom we know as Isaac. But it was never nationality. It was never flesh. It was never race. That might have been the starting point. And that might have been how God revealed his covenants and his promises. But Paul says very clearly here, the children of the promise extend far beyond Israel. Even when we read the words of the covenant itself in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, though it will start with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, though it will start with Israel, what is the end of the promise? And in you... All the families, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And so Paul says, though much of national Israel, Paul says, listen, my heart breaks for them. Those are my people. But most of them have rejected Jesus. And to this day, most of them reject Jesus. But Paul says, and he assures us this morning, God's promises have not failed. Because the children of the promise is a bigger concept than just that one nation. The purposes of God in the world is a way bigger concept than just that one people. God's grace is bigger than that. And it was always bigger than that. This was God's plan from the very beginning. Now listen. This is where it gets a little tricky. Because we have to ask the question in all this, who is at the helm? Who's in control of all this? We can't look at this. We cannot look at this. According to Paul, according to Scripture, we cannot look at this scenario and say, well, Israel was plan A, And that didn't go as God planned, so now we're in the church age, or however we want to define it. We can't say that, because as we look at Scripture, as we look at Paul, what he says here, there has been one plan, one promise, and one people from the very beginning. One purpose, one promise, one plan, and it was always bigger than just that one people. It was bigger from all eternity. And so Paul says, regardless of their rejection and regardless of their unbelief, listen, Paul says, God is at the helm. God is in control. And this is all going according to his plan, according to his purpose, according to his will, according to his choice. Isaac had two sons, you'll remember, Paul tells us here it's Jacob and Esau. Both children of Isaac. Both children of Abraham. And so we would look at that and say, okay, both children of the promise. Paul says no. Children of Isaac, yes. Children of Abraham, yes. But not both children of the promise. In Genesis chapter 25, we see Jacob and Esau born twins. Esau was the firstborn. Esau was the heir. He was supposed to inherit the blessing. But even down in Genesis chapter 25, even in Genesis chapter 25, even there, as Esau came out first, Jacob was there pulling at his heel, remember? It was a sign of what was to come. It was foreshadowing what was to come. Remember, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. 
Jacob swindles the firstborn out of his birthright. And then in Genesis chapter 27, Jacob, with the help of his mother Rebekah, deceives their father Isaac to steal the birthright officially, the blessing, the inheritance, the promise from Esau. And we look at that story and we see deception and we see lying and stealing and cheating. And yet when we look at how the promise of God unfolds in the story, look at what Paul says in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told the older will serve the younger. Esau, the firstborn, will serve Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Both Isaac's children, but only one, was a child of the promise. And it wasn't who it should be, the firstborn, Esau. It was Jacob by deception and lying and trickery. But Paul says in verse 11, this was nevertheless God's choice. And we look at that and it's very clear. It's not because of Jacob. I mean, it says before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. And then we look at their lives and we see in spite of all the bad they did, God still looks at Jacob and chooses Jacob in his grace. And then we have this very pointed statement from the book of Micah, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That word hated means rejected, as if to recoil from. God says, Jacob, promise, Esau, rejected. And we say, that's unfair. That's unjust. Isn't that what Paul presumes we'll say in verse 14? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So before we say unfair, unjust, we have to say not so fast, because listen, this has nothing to do with Jacob or Esau. This isn't about Jacob being the favorite. This isn't about Esau doing something wrong or Jacob doing something right. If we learned anything from verse 11, before they were born, before they did anything, none of this was based on them. Because here's the truth. Neither one of them deserved any of it. It wasn't conditioned upon them. Look at what he says at the end of verse 11. Not because of works but because of him who calls. Look at what he says in verse 15. Not because of works, but because God shows mercy to whom he wills and he shows compassion to whom he wills. If we're going to talk about the word mercy, we have to begin with the concept that it is absolutely undeserved by anyone. It's absolutely unearned by anyone. And so for God to show mercy to anyone is more grace than any part of the human race deserves. 
And so when we look around and we see unbelievers, we see the lost, our friends, our family, we look at the world. We're tempted to feel anger and outrage. We need to let the Holy Spirit turn that into godly sorrow and weeping and anguish for them. But then we need to stop and consider this. You and I would be no different if it were not, as the song says, were it not for grace. And you say, yes, pastor, but I chose that. Yes, pastor, I would be just like the lost, except I knew better. I understood. Did you? I think Paul would beg to differ. Back in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, he tells us emphatically from the prophet's mouth, no one seeks for God. No one. And so you look at the world and you look at the lost and then you look in this room and you look at yourself and you say, well, what made the difference? What made the difference if it wasn't me, if it wasn't my work, if it wasn't my choice, if it wasn't my righteousness? What made the difference? Verse 11 makes clear it wasn't you. Before you were born and before you had done anything either good or bad, not according to works, but according to him who calls in unconditional mercy, God set his love on you. And if he hadn't, you would be in the same boat as the rest of the world. Do you see this profound mercy and grace here in you today? Again, not that you're so great. Not that you're so holy. Not that you're so righteous. But that God showed mercy. Not based on anything foreknown about you, not based on anything that you have done or that you have accomplished, but what does Paul say in verse 16? It depends not on human will or exertion, but what does it all depend on? On God who shows mercy. Have you considered this morning that you are the recipient of God's great mercy and grace apart from anything that you've done. In fact, you've received God's great grace and mercy for you in spite of everything that you have done. That God loved you and God chose you to belong to him before creation itself. Read with me Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ in, every, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
And I have to remind you of what we just saw in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. That those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The truth that Paul presents us here, the truth that the Bible presents us with on every page is that you have come to know God. Listen, you have come to know God because from times eternal, he knew you. You have come to love God because from eternity past, he loved you. You have come to choose God because from all eternity past, he chose you. Simply from his own grace and his own mercy, his own sovereign will and his own sovereign purpose. Oh, what joy and what worship should be ours when we consider this truth. That God's mercy and God's compassion found us when we were undeserving, when we were wandering, when we were just as cold and just as hard-hearted as any unbeliever. But God. These are profound mysteries for sure. I'm not here to suggest this morning that this is easy. But here's what I am asking. Whatever questions and whatever confusion we have, can't we just leave it at his feet? Can't we just stop arguing about systems and words and vocabulary just for a moment and marvel at the beauty here? Can't we just stop all the noise and all the systems and all the one-liners And just take a moment to worship. This is surely holy ground. And here Paul gives us just a glimpse as we peer into eternal mysteries, into the purpose of God. And it would behoove us just for a moment to shut our mouths and to take off our shoes and to realize in whose presence we are. And to stand in awe of his mercy to you. But the inevitable question comes up, doesn't it? Comes up for Paul. Number three today, what about them? It's a legitimate question. Okay, Paul, I hear you. But what about Esau? Poor Esau. What about unbelievers? Isn't there, isn't there something here, Paul, that's rigged? Isn't there something here that's unfair, all this, all this choosing and rejecting and election and predestination? Isn't there something rigged and unfair in all of this? Well, Paul knows this question is coming. He'll get to it in verse 19. But he begins with an example, the example of Pharaoh. Verse 17, he says, here's a good example of this. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens 
whom he wills. Now, why Pharaoh? That's an odd example to go all the way back to Exodus and say, here's a, here's a prime example. Think about Pharaoh. When you start asking, what about Esau? What about them? What about that unbeliever? What about those people? What about Pharaoh? Back in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 3, when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh, what did he tell Moses he was going to do to Pharaoh? He said, from the beginning, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In other words, he's in the same boat that Esau finds himself in, this rejection of God. But we must remember the rest of the story. We don't come to Pharaoh's hardening by God out of nowhere, do we? Pharaoh doesn't enter into this situation neutral or innocent And God just wants to pick on poor Pharaoh and chooses to harden his heart so that he says no. Remember, as we went through Exodus, remember this? Before God had anything to harden, before God had to do anything to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. Remember this? Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So when God's judgment on Pharaoh is yet further hardening, We're not looking at someone who is on neutral ground, who is innocent, whom God then cruelly hardens. Pharaoh had already hardened his heart in unbelief, in hatred of God, in disobedience. Listen, God's judgment on Pharaoh was just simply to hand him over to what he was already doing. Back in Romans chapter 1, we saw this, didn't we? This repeated pattern. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, what do we see? God handed them over. Us, sinners. Romans chapter 1, verse 26, what do we see again? Same pattern, that rhythm. God handed them over. Romans chapter 1, verse 28, God handed them over. God hands people over in his judgment to their sin, which they chose in and of themselves. God delivers people to their unbelief in righteous justice because they have already rejected him. So that when we see God show mercy and grace and compassion to some, Yet others remain in their unbelief and their hardness of heart. We can't look at that equation and say, well, it's God's fault. Their unbelief and their sin is not God's fault. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Who suppresses the truth? They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. They are without excuse. Listen to me very carefully. God does not have to act. For people to sin, for people to rebel, for people to reject him. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 3 verse 18, people are already condemned because they've rejected him. This is the natural fallen state of humanity in sin and the fall. And it is on them. And so God... In his rejection, listen, isn't keeping anyone from coming to faith in Christ. They are there already. In fact, if we're talking about what God owes people, 
We could talk about that for a moment, couldn't we? Romans 6, 23, what does he owe us? What is the wages that we have deserved? Death. The wages of sin is death. That's what we're owed. And so for God to judge and to divvy out death and condemnation to anyone, listen, that is perfectly fair. It is perfectly just. It is perfectly righteous. Listen, as God gives them over to what they most want in the first place. Augustine said it this way. The man whom God permits to go astray and to become hardened has deserved this evil. While the man upon whom he has mercy has received the grace of God. This man who was rendered good for evil. And so when the objection comes and says, that doesn't sound fair. God hardens and then he condemns. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can God blame us for doing what he ordained us to do in the first place? If he's sitting around hardening people in their unbelief, why does he then blame us? Remember, they hardened. They refused. They rejected. They rebelled. And so when God judges, his judgment is just. Verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to make known his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Listen, isn't it the right of the potter To do as he wishes with the clay. Tim Keller says we must beware of standing in judgment over God rather than remembering that he is judge over us. We all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve hell. Jacob deserved it. Esau deserved it. No one deserves grace. But for God to judge by giving anyone over to their sin is the just wages of what they deserve. While on the other hand, for God to show grace and mercy, calling whomever he wills, I would challenge you once again to find the injustice, to find the unfairness. Because if you ask, what do I deserve? That would be justice. But we have received grace and mercy beyond and in spite of what we deserve. And so as the names and faces and the souls come to mind, unbelievers, the lost, the prodigals in your family, this doesn't make anyone, listen to me, quote, a lost cause. This doesn't make anyone a lost cause. On the contrary, yes, The mercy and the grace and the choice of God is his prerogative and his sovereign will. But I want you to hear me very clearly this morning. We as Christians don't have magical glasses that show us that. So what do we do? We go on reaching. We go on loving. We go on sharing. We go on praying. 
having peered into the mysteries of God, we come back leaving it to him. As we do what he's told us to do. And what has he told us to do? Matthew 28, 19. To go and make disciples. And if anything, this truth should inspire us with zeal and trust to go do what he's told us to do. Because here's what this means at the end of the day. If he can save me, and if he can save you, he can save anyone. As for me, like Spurgeon, I'm rooting for everyone. Spurgeon comically said, now this wasn't in his systematic theology, (laughs) Spurgeon comically said one time, Oh God, save the elect and then elect some more. Now Spurgeon knew how election worked and he knew there wasn't going to be more and less and all this. He was making a point though. God, you do your will. And as I preach the gospel and as I share your love with the lost, bring everybody into the fold. Because as we conclude today, God's plan is bigger. This is the hope and the promise behind all of this. God's plan is bigger. If it were up to Israel then, it would just be Israel, but it's bigger than that. If it were just up to us today, it would just be us today. But God's plan is bigger than us, and it's always been bigger. Verse 24 says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. Those who are not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts himself had not given us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you see what the prophets are promising there? Even in the page of the Old Testament, it's bigger than Israel. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. According to God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign purpose, the plan is bigger than you and I can ever imagine. Deuteronomy chapter 29 Verse 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. We will not understand all of the secret things. You understand that? We're not meant to understand all the secret things. Election, predestination, these are weighty, serious, mysterious questions. And it's good that we struggle with these issues. It's good that we wrestle with them. But at the end of it all, we must submit To God's word. And here's the truth for you this morning. You don't have to grasp everything perfectly to submit to his word. You don't have to have answers for all the questions and all the objections to submit to God's word. To say, God, I see this. I trust you. You are good. You are holy. I may have questions, but I leave this to you, the potter. But it's not all secret, is it? The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which have been revealed, they are for you and for your children. Leave the secret things to God and be faithful 
to the revealed things. Remain faithful to what God has given you to do and trust him to be faithful to what he has said he will do. Jesus has not returned. The window of mercy and grace is still open, so we preach with confidence. We pray with confidence. We love with confidence. Listen, be the voice of the shepherd and trust the shepherd to call his sheep. But I want to promise you something this morning. None of the issues and none of the objections and none of the questions... None of those things are even the real scandal here. We, we often think about these doctrines and this issue, and we think that the scandal is in the rejecting. And that the scandal is in the leaving and the judgment and the condemnation. That's not where the scandal is. The scandal of this all is in the grace. The scandal of this all is in the mercy. That's where the wonder is. Spurgeon once again said about Jacob and Esau, the real wonder in all of this, Spurgeon said, is not that God rejected Esau. That's not the wonder. You know where the wonder is? The real wonder is that he loved Jacob. The real question we should be asking ourselves this morning, as Dr. Sproul said so eloquently, is not, why not them? Why not them? Why not them? The real question we should be asking concerning God's grace this morning is, why me? Why me? When I was in Bible college, I'm struggling very hard with this issue. And um, <clears throat> it was on something called Day of Prayer, where you just spend different days, uh, different times throughout the day in prayer, in the auditorium, in your room, whatever. And um, early in the morning after a, a chapel service, we were told to go back to our rooms and, and open in our Bibles and read and pray and spend some time together uh, just by ourselves with the Lord in prayer and meditation. And uh, this is just very heavy on me. For whatever reason, I read Romans 9, and I never, again, for whatever reason, never read Romans 9 before in my entire life. And I remember as if it were God just laying his word open before me, Plain black and white letters. You read it today. I read it to you. We talked about it. And it was as if the question just simply came. This is what it says. Will you accept it or reject it? And what else do you do in that moment except, okay, I give up. There's the truth. I accept it. I submit. And everything else, God, I leave to you. That's what I want to challenge you with this morning. Just the simple word of God. You've heard it, you've read it, you've talked about it. With this and with everything else in your life, you can trust God. God is good. God is holy. And God is able. 
Let's stand as we pray today. I know I've gone long. You say, what's new? We're still going to sing our closing song today. So fitting for us. And uh, then I have a special little presentation after that. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your word. I ask that in all of our questions and all of our thoughts and all of our objections, you would help us just simply submit and worship to you. As we pray the lyrics of this song, have thine own way, Lord. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. God, we give it all to you. We trust you with it all. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, so undeserved by us, but so freely given through Jesus. And so we praise you and thank you through him and in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.